Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's it like to be the batting stance guy? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 81 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 48 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show on Friday nights on iTunes under The Bridge Sports Podcast or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text in to the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. Well, Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor finally met in the ring for a fight deemed as two kings of their respective sports clashing for their crown. The fight had its moments, at least, and the outcome was one of the better ones that fans of boxing and MMA could have asked for. Of course, there would be heated discussion following the fight, but none more heated than two ESPN personalities who were somehow able to compare the way Mayweather and McGregor fought to food. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. The clash between two kings in Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor ended early Sunday morning with Floyd winning via 10th round TKO to extend his career record to 50-0. The Irishman did fight valiantly against the old vet, even winning some of the earlier rounds before Mayweather went on the attack. Boxing was certainly happy for not losing the fight. MMA was happy for not losing that badly. And Vegas was assuredly as happy for the fools that put money on Conor McGregor. ESPN, of course, had post-fight coverage after the spectacle. 
And it didn't take long for former trainer Teddy Atlas and personality Stephen A. Smith to end up in a verbal sparring match almost as fiery as the sparring that went on within the ring. When SportsCenter anchor Steve Levy asked if Floyd Mayweather was good in the fight, the conversation somehow shifted to cooking meat. And to continue with these awful puns, things got heated indeed. What I'm saying is McGregor forced, he forced a gourmet chef to be a fast order cook. That's what he did. He, he forced a gourmet chef to be that a guy. Make, but doesn't that make the, it fast food? I mean, are you yeah, analogy, it does. doesn't that make it fast food? That, it's exactly not a la carte steak? He I made, mean, that's what I'm saying. He I made mean, him it, go it, in it, there. Listen. And he made listen, him flip cheeseburgers. Well, listen, he listen, made him there go we go. Order. He made him do something. Whoa, 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 some, you know, some, some filet mignon, and instead you get a burger. Okay, yeah. ain't it a burger? I mean, it's just a burger. That's what we saw tonight. Yeah, That's re- all I'm saying. Yeah, let me That's re- all I'm saying. He made the adjustment to be what he had okay. to be. He, he had to be it, that. But it's a, still a cheeseburger. He had it's to not be. a steak. Kevin, That's all I'm saying. But who's eating it? Floyd's eating it. The other guy's not. Though Stephen A. is usually the one spitting fire during a debate, Bless Teddy Atlas for punching back, almost literally, during his metaphor. And also, bless Stephen A. Smith, once again proving he's the best in the argument business by taking the bait. If there's a rematch of this fight down the road, hopefully Emerald Lagasse, Guy Fieri, and Mario Batali can drop by to help us truly analyze the end result. I'm John Lund for Sports News, read like real news. Let's take a quick break to get some fast food. When we come back, we'll talk to the batting stance guy about his life with the least marketable skill in America. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text into the bridge at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of the bridge. Now we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text into the bridge. This week, we want to know who has your favorite batting stance and why. To this week's guest in Garai Ness, who you most likely know as the batting stance guy, Gar went from a baseball savant to an internet sensation overnight a few years back when his batting stance impressions of the Boston Red Sox really just went viral and made a childhood dream come true in the process. He's been to all 30 baseball stadiums, met with countless current and former players, appeared on The Tonight Show, wrote his own book, and has been one of the patron saints of making baseball fun again. This was an incredibly fun interview for me. I've been a fan of Batting Stance Guy from the early days and actually won a copy of Gar's book through one of his contests as well. So it was a pleasure to hear his story of becoming 
the batting stance guy. We'll talk about how that all started, his love for baseball long before internet fame, how he's able to remember all of these batting stances that he does do, some of his favorite interactions with past and present players, and much more. You can follow Gar on Twitter. He's at batting stance G, as in the letter G. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Gar Rines, a baseball aficionado to say the least, and who you probably know as the batting stance guy. Gar, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you? I am great. It is a thrill to be thought of so kindly. Amazing. It's a thrill for me to get to speak with you. As I mentioned before coming on here, I have your book. I was lucky enough to get it in a contest many years back. Of course, I couldn't find it for this particular interview, but thankfully I remember hopefully some yeah. of it. <laughs> and we can <laughs> definitely hit on that and some of the other things you're up to and what people most likely know you for. And I wanted to start by turning back the clocks a little bit and Ooh. going back to a story that it seems like everyone involved in sports seems to have specific to the sport that they love. What made you Ooh. fall in love with the game of baseball for starters to be the fan that you are today? You know, that's a good question. My, um, my sister has a little son that's six years old um, right now. And he, just on a dime is completely thrown himself headfirst into knowing every San Diego Padre, every Oakland A, every stat, what just happened. Like he's giving updates as if he's on Twitter or something. And I, and I, and I, my parents watching this will say, just so you know, Gar, that's, that's exactly what you did back then. So I don't remember, I don't remember it happening. Um, but I just remember going through a pack of baseball cards by 1980 and then my dad pointing out, Oh, he's good. Oh, he's no, he's, he's not very good. Like he's amazing. And so, you know, he pointed to Pete Rose and said, wow, now that isn't, that's a great player. I was going to say awesome, but I don't think he said that word in 1980. So he's like, that is a really, that's a boss player right there. And, um, and so, I think probably just because my dad was into it. Uh, I'm not into Steely Dan or the Doobie Brothers like he was, but I'm into baseball. Which there's nothing wrong of. And you grew up no. in the Bay Area when yeah. baseball was not incredibly as popular as it probably became there, but still a great place to watch baseball. How much did it help that you were able to just maybe skip a day of class, don't tell mom and dad, go to the baseball field, and just be able to immerse yourself in a game at the young age? Yeah, um, I, I went to a lot of Oakland A's games, and then um, when I wrote the book, it was you know 50 greatest chances of my lifetime, and I and someone asked me if there was some connection or like what, what team had the most of the guys that are in your book. And I thought, wow, I have no idea. In fact, I thought there wouldn't be any team that had more than like two or three at a time. And so in doing the research, I realized that, wow, most players that were ever on a certain team of those 50 were the 84 Oakland A's. And so, you know, I'm a, I'm a kid and I'm, I'm impressionable. And I'm going to pretty lousy Oakland A's team games, 
and I'm looking and it's just guy after guy after guy doing something interesting, whether it's like an old player, like, like a Dave Kingman, um, or a, um, or a young player like Mickey Tettleton or Tony Phillips or right in the middle, like Carney Lansford or Ricky Anderson. So maybe that was it. Maybe I was just, and then Jack Clark was across the bay the time this is pre Will Clark. And so maybe all those kind of juggling pyrotechnics of stance were just, you know, at seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, my brain was just being told, hey, this is really interesting. And so maybe that's where maybe that's why you know, I had grown up in Philadelphia, you you'd have to be this person. You you like I, I couldn't be it, you'd have to be it. I'd be doing a lot of Lenny Dykstra impressions, probably. Oh. Maybe John Crook um, getting the ball thrown at him in the All-Star game, things like that. Yeah. So I'm glad that going to Game 3 of the 89 World Series in San Francisco and being there for the earthquake didn't deter you mm-hmm. from the game of baseball for the rest of your life. No, it didn't. It was, the, it was definitely the worst traffic that I've ever been in um, on the way home from a game. But most of your core posse um i'm assuming we all think about either sports or a team kind of the same way and so when it was raining when i wake up in the morning i was devastated that pe wasn't going to be like whatever it was going to whatever it was supposed to be like outside or that a baseball game would be canceled and so you know and there was not a cloud in the sky and i went to game three of the world series i just my brain couldn't comprehend a game not being played and so we're in the stadium i walk in i've been telling people all week that giants fans are so much more dynamic than a's fans at the time um and so a's fans were very kind of i don't know dockers you know khakis and had nice jobs and you know candlestick was just you had to smell bad. You had to look like Willie Nelson. It was, it was just a, it was a, somebody was going to be smoking a cigarette right in your face. Like it was just a weird place for, as a kid. Um, and so right when I step in the candlestick and it's the place is going nuts, I just think, yes, this is exactly what I'm talking about. And then the stadium starts to rock and it starts to really rock. And my first thought is I have been telling people all week about this. This is what I'm talking, not knowing it's an earthquake. Like, I, I just thought, yep, I was saying the crowd is wild here. And then stuff was rolling and stuff was moving. And I was looking at a guy with a green jacket in the lower level. We were on the upper deck. And I was losing him. Like, the, the upper deck on the third baseline was, was moving so much, it was covering up the guy with the green jacket. And so... I was in, I couldn't see him, and then I could see him, and then I couldn't see him, and I thought, wait a minute. And then the light standards were moving. And so it honestly took like 10 full seconds for me to realize, oh, gosh, we're having an earthquake. Because uh, normally they're just over before you realize it after it's over. But this would just kept going and going and going. And then when it stopped, everyone, I don't know if you've ever seen the old, I don't know, Chris Berman or Al Michaels, like footage of being there when it happened or Bob Lee. Um, but, the, but everyone just starts cheering. Like it was pretty loud, like, woo. All right, let's go. Let's get a drink and a dog and let's watch the game. I don't know. It, 
it wasn't, oh my gosh, I'll bet you the bridge fell and I'll bet you there's the 80, the Cypress structure collapsed on cars, you know, that couldn't see out of the stadium. So it was those old like Sony watchmen's, you know, so there's like, you know, no cell phone. I mean, nobody, nobody had anything. So they would gather around these little pods of the person that has like the black and white Sony watchman or watchman. And, um, yeah, it was then we, then a cop car drove on the field and the lights weren't on. I remember thinking, huh, that's weird. Maybe the game's going to be delayed. I remember my dad saying, sign out. I'm not sure they're going to play the game tonight. And I remember thinking like, what? <laughs> no way. <laughs> I don't know. I just didn't have a real like worldly um, <laughs> appreciation for like, oh, there's like a whole world and people that aren't into sports and there's a major earthquake literally in the city where both teams pretty much play at five o'clock on a school night in October and all the lights are out. <laughs> like, let's, let's chill out on the game and like somebody like get a generator and somebody direct traffic. Like there's no, like the streetlights don't work. Um, yeah, it was, it was really, it was really nuts looking back on it now. Yeah. It's, it's nice to be at memorable games, but that's one that's, on the different side of a spectrum for memorable where I mean now of course looking back the magnitude of an event like that when you just wanted to maybe see a walk-off home run or something end up being part of history in a different way well that's the thing I've seen a game in every stadium and I've never gotten even to like two outs in the fifth inning of a (laughs) no-hitter you know like I cannot get close to a no-hitter or like a four-homer game. So I've seen two World Series walk-off homers, which feels like a lot because it's probably in our lifetime only been, I don't know, 15, maybe 13. Um, and I've seen two of them. They're two of the least memorable ones. But, but yeah, I still think that's probably the most important game I went to. Or they the most notable. Eh, the second one would probably be the White Sox put Sednick walk off the game two against Houston. That was a, that was an incredible game. And then I went to the, nobody ever remembers the 1988 world series walk off homer, not the Kirk Gibson one, the game three, Mark McGuire one off Jay Howell. Yes. The other one. Slightly, just slightly less. (laughs) I have a similar tale of going to see Cal Ripken play at Camden yards. And then he took himself out of the lineup and ended his streak as an eight or nine year old, however old I was then. So another time oh, really? you went, being on you part went of that? history. I was there, yes. We were very excited to watch Cal Ripken. My father had his camera <laughs> focused on where he should be, and then he moved over to his first position thinking, well, maybe they switched him for this game, whoever knows why, oh, and wow. then you start hearing the murmurs of like Cal's not in the lineup and all of a sudden there's just this like roar that starts coming up through the the crowd and he made his his victory lap i have a picture of it that he took on my wall with the ticket so it was great to be there wow. but as you say as a young kid when you wanted to go see Cal Ripken even though i was a Yankees fan and he didn't play you don't really get the significance of the moment it's more like did he have to do that tonight now looking back yeah. it's it's a lot better to tell that story but at the time it was where is he <laughs> is he going to come in later in the game no that was it so 
that's baseball. Wow, that's awesome. You never know what you're going to see at these things. It's unbelievable. No, you never know. The the first um, statistical game that I went to of note was um, Ken Landro in Minnesota hit uh, three triples in one game. Now, I was too young to remember it, but recently when Denard Span tied that record, um, my dad brought up that, oh, yeah, remember that was the game we went to in Minnesota at the family reunion. You know, I was too young to remember right. it, but. That was the only like statistical quirky game I think I've ever attended. And my first game ever was in a luxury box at Yankee Stadium, and I'm never going to top that. So this no. is just the sport that we've fallen in love with. And yeah, it's interesting starting with your path to where we're getting to now is that a lot of people that play baseball, playing wiffle ball in the backyard – back when kids used to go outside and actually play with yeah. ball instead of on their televisions, you always imitate your favorite players. You imitate yeah. moments. How was this something that became next level for you or, or something that went above and beyond just a, a fun thing in the backyard, something you might've even realized I'm not too bad at this. <laughs> um, so it was in, it was in college. So like you said, so I grew up in Northern California and God bless all Californians, but there's just, there's this other stuff to do. So I, I'm, you know, I may have been better off imitating, you know, scenes from Criterion Collection DVDs, you know, than, than Minnesota twins in the eighties. Um, and so then when I went to college, um, at Syracuse, the, some you know we were playing wiffle ball and a guy said hey i'm gonna do letting dykstra and then i did wally backman and then a couple other people in the room were like man that looks just like him so it was honestly it was like the first time that people that i got any reaction to it and then um you know the great thing about imitating stances is you don't have to be good at voice so you don't have to be you know saturday Night live worthy to imitate people it's just if you if you have somewhat of a knack for mannerisms or nuance that um and you find a really nerdy bunch that knows who you're imitating um yeah it just was the perfect time for youtube to be invented and a a buddy that produces music videos um said hey can i video you doing this and i'm going to put it and i'm going to send it to my buddies back in boston I just figured literally he was going to like make a VHS tape and send it to him. And then he put it on YouTube and sent him the link. And then Bill Simmons pretty much the next day put it on his ESPN two page or page two. And then it just sort of took off. So, I mean, I'd love to tell you there was a, a business plan and a proposal and a grad school project on, you know, world domination, but there was not, it was, it was total dumb luck and just kind of right place at the right time. And then enough of the players saw it that um, when some teams started having me do pregame shows, the players then had seen the videos because we put out a video for every team. And then they started pulling me into the clubhouse or putting me in the middle of stretching circles. And so, I mean, it was just, as it was happening, I just, I just I couldn't believe it. You know, it was the dream of every dorky baseball fan um 
I just, I couldn't believe it. You know, I couldn't believe that players had seen it or they, this sounds, this sounds totally backwards, but, um, they're the best at getting the joke. So I figured, you know, the bigger of a celebrity that you are, you immediately forget a thousand people you grew up with's names and you don't notice things that are happening. And you're, you're just, you know, you're, you're, you kind of, your brain sort of goes a little more mushy. Um, and what was strange is that I couldn't find two friends that would get what joke I was trying to tell with the stance and the players got it and would laugh at moments where I, I just wasn't used to people laughing, you know? So if somebody wanted to see Ricky Anderson, sure. I, you know, a couple of people in college would laugh, but, but the players would laugh at guys that no one had ever asked me to imitate, you know? They got the joke, they got the toe tap, they got me walking around with too much of a, I don't know, my chest puffed out a little too much. Swagger for it's Ricky, a, you have to have Yeah, that. for like the bravado of Yvonne Calderon, like the, the, the teammates would laugh hard, and I just thought, this is incredible. I, I, I would have thought the opposite, which was like the players wouldn't even like waste their time looking at me, you know? <laughs> so for the players to get the joke, get the nuance, laugh hard at all the appropriate moments, I mean, it was just it was surreal. There was one time years ago where the Yankees had me perform at their team dinner before opening day in Chicago. It was Cheaters last year, and, and it went great. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. And then the next day down on the field, Ichiro walks by, kind of gets my attention, and then does a series of imitations, exaggerated versions back to me. And you know, like the guys in Houston standing around are like, do you know him? How do you, how does he, why is he doing this? <laughs> and he was like gathering other players around. And it was just so sur- surreal because it's like, they're the best audience for this. And why would I ever think, you know, in high school or college, like, why would I ever think like, Oh, well, once the players see this, right. well, how are they going to see it? Right. Like what, what mechanism, what world are they going to see it in? You know? And even when the YouTube thing started, I didn't even really know what it was. My brother is eight years younger and far more technologically savvy and his friends, he's been on Broadway for a long time as an actor. And so his friends were texting me the day that it went on the front page of YouTube, this Red Sox video. And they were like, dude, you're featured. Oh my gosh, you're featured. And I'm texting back like, awesome. Like, I had no idea what that meant. I, I, I didn't even know what the phrase meant. And then I checked on YouTube and the, you know, comments went from 70 comments to 1600 comments. And I was like, what just happened? Why, why, why are there that many people that saw this? So yeah, I was, I'm a little late to the, to the technology game and just kind of right place, right time. And I guess, I don't know, the, the players were interested in some clean comedy that's <laughs> perfectly suited right to them (laughs) and that's that's kind of how it took off it's one of the more interesting parts because you mentioned your friend just happening to send it to bill simmons what are the odds that he even gets it and then has enough sense to know that this is something that would be enjoyable and puts it on page two r.i.p I believe yeah. Dan Patrick <laughs> made mention of it on his show as well. Yeah. And 
that's sort of when things start taking off. But in the interim, you're not just locked in your basement in front of a mirror doing these day after day with like a ball and chain and people are feeding you bread to do these over and over again until you become famous. Like you're doing other things in life and have career things that are going on. What was that like for you when this took off? How were you contacted by teams and by agents? And what was that couple of months or maybe a year period like when you were a hot commodity and people wanted you to come out and perform in a way? Yeah, it was um, it was surreal because I know the whole thing works better with me being like an accountant in Akron and not knowing anyone in the entertainment. So, so just by default and just because of location in California and family members, it's just there. And then my brother doing Broadway stuff there, there's enough people that have kind of done something in entertainment that I've, um, I've been around it. So when it happened, um, for sure it was crazy for me, but I don't know. I watched my brother sign autographs and watched, um, you know, certain friends kind of climb the ranks in either writing or directing or stuff. I just, I just hadn't climbed on board or, you know, gone on auditions for that stuff or whatever. So, um, so it was for sure was crazy, but I think cause of my age, cause of, cause of all this happening right at about 35, um, and married with two kids, it was, it just kind of seemed like, wow, this is going to be a really great story at a barbecue. I, I didn't think of it like, here we go. I'm going to be an analyst now on Fox, you know, or MLB network. I, Shoot, MLB Network didn't exist. Like when the when the Red Sox video posted, it had, it hadn't it didn't exist. So, so I just thought, cool, this this is like this inter- internet thing, and it's going to go away. And you know, in a month, it'll go away, and there'll be a kid that recites the alphabet and every World Series victory backwards, and that'll take my place. Yeah, you know, I just didn't think of it as like, oh gosh, this is going to be, you know, ten years from now, I'm going to be in the booth, you know, talking to angels announcers on air. You know, I, I don't know. I, I just thought this is really funny and goofy. And then as I gotten to go down on the field, I realized, wow, I kind of killed two birds with one stone. I can do this and have this awesome experience. And then I can grab my daughters and bring them down on the field and have them experience certainly something that I didn't get to experience, which is like, you know, be 10 years old and on a major league field. Um, so that's been, that's been incredibly fun. Um, and then the kind of friends I've made in in the game, just kind of just from being around the players and the announcers, um, has been really fun because so many of them are so cool. They'll say, "Hey, next time we're in town, you know, bring, you know, come on up to the booth, and then I'll grab my daughter and bring her up too." And 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 so both girls have been able to, you know, be on the field, meet players, and kind of do stuff that I dreamed about. Now I don't. I don't think necessarily it's their dream, you know, but uh, but it's been really fun to kind of be able to dually um, cross uh, off bucket list items for myself, and then you know my oldest daughter's seen a game in twenty different stadiums, which is great. I mean, she has ten to go. My goal is to to have her stay above her age in amount of games in stadiums she's seen games in. And so, uh, and the youngest one is 
think she's at 11 and she is 11. So she's, um, she's on pace. They will have seen a game at every stadium. They're very lucky. At 27, I'd have a lot of catching up to do if I were <laughs> yeah. to, to do that myself. Have players or managers or even people that you've dealt with in the booth and analysts and different things you've been able to do been impressed or, or maybe shocked in a way at how much baseball knowledge you have aside from just doing these impressions of batters? You know, um, I liken it to... I'm assuming a band probably goes on stage and then, you know, gets people screaming out their biggest hits. And then, you know, maybe they're at a party and someone pulls them aside and just says, Hey, the B side acoustic version you did on this tribute album six years ago. And and the band's probably like, Oh wow. Like if you know that let's go grab dinner, you know? And so there's been a couple of guys, like even in the last two weeks, um, there's a Padres radio announcer, Jesse Agler, and he fills in also for some TV, but he is um, like, we share the same brain when it comes to this stuff. So occasionally I'll be driving in a rural enough location in, in California where I'll get his call and then um, we'll, we'll text him something because he's pretty funny. And then he'll immediately like reference something on air um, and that just seems crazy, you know, like as, as like a, I don't know, as a 12 year old, first of all, what's texting? And second of all, like, how do you even know an announcer, you know? And then, so he's been really savvy. So he'll sometimes text me even during games saying, Hey, have you ever seen like a Swaje, the this guy on the Padres, have you ever seen one do that lean? And I, I'd never even heard of him when he asked me. And then I like looked him up this player and he does this bizarre like crouch down between every pitch. And so it's awesome having different guys like that. Victor Roas is awesome. He's the first time I went to MLB network, he was the main host there. And then we just kept in touch and our families are kind of like similar stages and he's a great dude. And, you know, it's just brought my family up to the booth and, um, a week ago. And so he's also savvy. He gets stuff like that. Steve Rathume, of the Dimex had me in the booth and was, was asking me about certain players. And then I would tell him what he was about to see. And then when he saw it, he would like yell, like with usual suspects and he was reading the wall. Um, so yeah, no, it's been, it's been really fun. And then on the road, like Epi Santangelo gets every, every nuance, every joke. He's a real fun follow. Um, and he gets, I mean, it's just so fun. A lot of the announcers, especially the color commentary guys, the, they love baseball just like us. I mean, it's a job for them and they're on the road all the time. But, um, but yeah, a lot of the announcers are really, really, really savvy. You know, what's funny is, you know, who's not savvy is like the producers because Pablo Sandoval will kick his bat, get his helmet with his bat, do all these zany things that the camera never shows it. It's so strange. Like the, the producer, the person in charge, like, is like, Oh, show the picture's face. Show the manager picking his nose. Show the girl in the bleachers. You know, it's like it's this guy's doing something so interesting, but yet I, they're not they're not nerdy enough to know. Okay, well, you know, you seal Puig from the on deck box to the batter's box is far more interesting than him actually in the batter's box. Right? Maybe you and I should just produce games from now. <laughs> you have a mind to know where we should be looking as fans and 
in making baseball fun again, as the saying goes, as Boog Shiambi likes to always say, making yeah. baseball fun again. And I, I think you're definitely yeah. helping with that and what you're doing. What people might not know is that this isn't something that you necessarily spend a lot of time researching as far as the batting stances go or standing in front of the mirror to making sure everything is perfect. <laughs> These are things that you're just able to do on the fly and, and do them incredibly well without hours upon hours of tape or footage. How are you able to remember all of these guys and not just the ones that you would find easy in a way, or I'm sure you get a thousand yeah. requests for, but the ones as you're saying where someone might even come up to you on the street, who's a diehard fan of X team and watched X player play in 1979. And you might be <laughs> able to do it for them. It's an incredible thing. Well, my grades in school would suggest that I do not have any type of superior memory. <laughs> so um, no photographic so, memory to become no, this like no, great doctor or something. No. Okay. <laughs> the amount of times someone will say the name John Nash or like Rain Man or Beautiful Mind or something, uh, it, it's a nice compliment, but it did not translate into scholastic success. <laughs> um, so I think it's just whatever you love and you're around a bunch, you just, it's not work. You just kind of take it in. And then um, I think because I was the last guy on my high school team and our team was good and it was, you know, through varsity, but, um, but because I was the last guy on the team, I feel particularly drawn to the last five or six guys on the team. So instead of just focusing on the all-stars, which would probably get more hits, on YouTube, I, I really enjoy if I'm going to be on the field um, or interacting with a team or like hosting somebody's charity event. Um, I really enjoy doing the extra work to get the nuance of the guy that no one's heard of. Um, Cause I remember, I mean, that would have been awesome if somebody paid attention to me when you're like the 15th or 15 guys, you know, on the team. And so a lot of times I've noticed when I'm on, when I'm on the field with the players, if it's usually like one of the best, three or four guys on the team that end up kind of being the MC and I right, do this guy, do this guy, do this guy. And they'll usually like joke about how there's no way I'd know this scrub. And then if I can tell them some fact about him or then do the actual imitation, which by the way, they may have only had nine at bats, but you can usually find some footage somewhere, even if it's like a baseball card. Remember Harold Reynolds, I hadn't really remembered or seen that much footage of him, but, I, I looked at some baseball cards and still shots of him, and I noticed that, like, Mark Grace's front arm never really was, like, straight whenever he was swinging. So I kind of exaggerated that. And then, sure enough, he came up to me. He's like, how did you know I have a crooked arm? Well, I didn't. I just I just <laughs> I take the one thing I noticed and just exaggerated it. And so in, in that case, it was correct, but usually it's not. I'm just... You know, Chipper Jones doesn't toe tap 11 times before the pitch comes, but to like draw the attention to my over toe tapping, you, the players will get it and they'll laugh, you know, even though my, <laughs> my friends and family are like, what are you doing with your foot? <laughs> right. It's so, more of those like little way, nuances than it is. No getting kidding. It and my family perfect. will be like, who's Chipper Jones? <laughs> <laughs> hopefully chipper's not listening he he might get to <laughs> hopefully he is family. yeah that is true he could come on next They're like oh larry Jones. oh yeah oh larry. <laughs> i know him i just don't know who's chipper 
you were able to take this a step further. We mentioned your book, A Love Letter to Baseball, and it's able to give more of a visual aid to some of your favorite batting stances. But I'm interested to also know if the book for you was maybe more of a vice to tell some of the great stories and experiences you've had through all this and not necessarily just to pinpoint a Kevin Euclid stance frame by frame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I gotta admit, I mean, when I, when I was approached, um, with a book deal, it, it just seemed, it just seemed so far fetched. I mean, I was like most people wondering like, wait, what would you want me to write about? <laughs> I mean, uh, some people's lives make for a pretty easy book, but when this one reached out to me, I was like, huh? And then the guy that originally turned on the video camera, um, he was there and he's like, no, no, let's, let's write this. And he's more kind of Ivy League-ish anyway. And so I thought, cool. I mean, almost on like Twitter, it's like, cool. It's like another different way to kind of work on the muscle of, I don't know, say an interesting thing. Um, so yeah, no, it was, it was, it was very fun. I mean, the book is, just as much about getting like rejected from girls in seventh grade um, than it is about Jerry Sheffield, you know, wagging the bat when he's in the box. Um, so it, yeah, it was just a really fun way to say, I love you back to baseball. Um, and, you know, Simon Schuster was interested in, there's a lot of books about baseball from grizzled veterans, ex players, uh, writers, but a, but just like a heartfelt book from a fan about baseball, you know, there, there's there's less of those. So they were looking for like something under twenty bucks, where it's like a fan's love of it, and um, yeah, it was really fun, incredibly fun to write. A book is pretty much like the most labor intensive business card you'll ever have. <laughs> it's just like, well, pour yourself into this for like a year, and then have it when you meet people and be like, hey, I'll send you a book. <laughs> so uh, be careful if you're starting to write a book. But it was, oh my gosh, it was great. It was it was like running a marathon. It's like a bucket list item that I'm, I'm thrilled. And, and it's been fun to kind of hear back from people that'll be appreciative or, or it was a similar situation for them. Or like, I've got a few letters back from people that have read it or somehow got it. Like, um, Supreme Court Justice uh, Sotomayor and Ken Burns, George Will wrote me a letter. You know, it's like incredible to have something that kind of goes anywhere. You know, that's been really, really, really fun. Yeah, it's definitely a great read. And it's much more than just people might think, oh, well, it's just going to be pictures of him swinging a bat. Well, no, there's there's stories and there's, there's a ton of information as well. And I'm sure it took a long time for you to put it together. And Highly recommend it, even though I got my copy for free. So I apologize that I, I yeah. can't help with <laughs> oh, no. help with marketing the least marketable skill in America, as <laughs> as you continue to call this. I wanted to wrap things up with you with some yeah. quick hitting questions, just because there's yeah. there's so much we can hit on and can probably do so. And a segment I've called "Easy or Pass." to play on a bridge pun in a sense, but I don't think any of these are going to be tough enough to have to pass, but we'll, we'll see okay. if that's going to be the case. And the first one has to be your Twitter avatar. Now is you in a Pete Rose Halloween costume from your childhood days. 
getting to meet Pete Rose and do an impersonation for him probably at the top of the list or at least close to it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was and it was it wasn't just him. It was the the big red machine. Yeah, the Reds had me be the entertainment at the Pete Rose Hall of Fame induction ceremony for the Reds last year. And yeah, no, it was it was just the biggest thrill to meet Johnny Bench and um Ken Griffey and George Foster and even Dave Parker was there. There was you know, there was kind of Chris Sabo, Eric Sabo. There were other random Reds and former Reds there, you know, for the event. Tony Perez, Dave Concepcion. My first glove was a Dave Concepcion model. Um, no, it was, it was, and again, same thing. Pete came up to me afterwards and said, Hey guards, just so you know, it's not, it's like, I could tell by your face who you were doing. Like it's not just like where your hands are, where, so it's like of all people for me to think would actually get the joke. I just wouldn't think it would be him. You know, I would think it would be a season ticket holder from Cincinnati would be the one that gets it, but it, it never is. It's it's actually the players that that get it more so than you'd imagine. It's totally bizarre to me. Yeah, it was a it was a great it was a thrill. It has to be, and and I'm sure it was a thrill or, or should have been a thrill as well for your mother for making a costume like that because if, yeah. if that was made in a two X, she should have made you a couple to kind of go through your life so you'd always have one. I know you're a huge fan of jerseys and humorous baseball t-shirts and such, but maybe to have (laughs) one like that that wasn't a size medium or whatever it would be would still carry some weight. Oh, man, that was was like a youth boy's extra small. (laughs) I mean, that was, it was, yeah, it really was a Halloween costume. And and she would always make our Halloween costumes as like a dual um, pajamas. So it was whatever that, I don't know, not felt, but that, that kind of weird. Right. You shouldn't. You shouldn't wear this to school. Right. Material. <laughs> the next year I was Gary Carter, by the way. Oh, th- that is right. I remember you saying that in in something or reading it somewhere. So you had a good stretch there, is what it comes down to. Somebody was doing something right. <laughs> yeah, I think I went to Luke Skywalker next, so it was it was short lived of the baseball only Halloween costume. Who ended up giving you the batting stance guy nickname? Was that you, or did somebody else bestow that upon no. you? No. Um, yeah, it was uh, Jeff Hetchell, longtime friend down in South Orange County. He came up for lunch, and what was it? I think it was maybe the Dan Patrick day. It was when it started to go more places. And I remember thinking, oh, you know what it was? It was... So the Minnesota Twins, uh, Fox Sports North, emailed me through the YouTube page and said, hey, can you come in tomorrow to do the pregame show? And I was, of course, thrilled, and it felt great. But I remember thinking, I don't live in Minnesota. Like, I think they think (laughs) I live here because nobody would know this that doesn't. (laughs) So then I remember calling them back and saying actually i i don't live here and they they're like what do you mean who i thought for sure like the person would live in like anoka that does this video and then i said yeah in fact we've got like i think 15 of the teams up they said well you did brewers too and they said yeah yeah here i can send it to you and so so then because they couldn't find it i was having lunch with him right after and i said yeah, they, they wanted me to be on it, but I don't, he said, well, you know, what you should do is like, 
make a website and just call it like batting stance guy. And I remember thinking, all right, I'll do that. <laughs> so it was like, luckily that I had this guy filming, basically I'm a moron. And then a buddy of mine videoed it. And then somehow it got to Bill Simmons. He put it on YouTube. And then a friend said, you should do this. So I may not know actually how to do anything. And I've just luckily been resourceful enough to have friends that told me what to do. So that's how the, that's how the name was invented. I, I'm just glad he didn't say like, be like batting stance douchebag, you know, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, shoot, I would have, that would have been a terrible name, but I probably would have just used it. How many wiffle ball bats have you gone through and do you still want to get one into the hall of fame at Cooperstown? <laughs> oh, wow. That'd be, that'd be great. Um, I remember getting a, a, a box of like six of them because I wanted it to be black, which technically is not wiffle, but um, I wanted it to look like a real bat, but my, my arms don't work like Gary Sheffield with a big bat. Right. <laughs> so I needed to look less like a 14 year old um, with an actual wooden bat. And so I got those black bats and part of it was because I figured once the Royals video came up, I was going to have to like Bo Jackson, like break it over my head. So I thought, man, I want to have a couple extras in case. And now they're just kind of like laying all over the place and I got to grab them. Those big ones are better for um, actually hitting a ball. Those like Easton ones that right. you can find at different sporting goods stores. Those are way better for hitting. But strangely, when I've been doing stuff on stage, it puts the people in the front row in peril. So I, so it's, I got It's kind of dangerous. And you always look like your bonds choking up if you choke up too much. Right. Well, you do do a lot of throwing as well, not just the hitting aspect, the throw behind. And if someone's standing behind you, they should know better if you're at a show, really. That's true. That's true. <laughs> when this really started taking off, you were on David Letterman in 2009. Did you at any point hold a grudge against your brother for also being on Conan the same night that you were on <laughs> David Letterman? So it's an easy it's an easy mix up. So Conan had the Tonight Show for the for the nine months, and so it was during that time that Conan hosted the Tonight Show, and then my brother was on it. Yeah, at the same time, and then the Late Show, the Bletterman, I was on, and we were just both on at the exact same time, and it's still, I would think, the strangest thing that's happened to our family. Um, just the what are the odds of that from an earthquake in a world series game yeah. to having your brother also on a well-renowned talk show the same night you for some reason are also on a renowned talk yeah show. and we switched coasts at the same time so after his show ended he was in hair and it just won a tony and he's one of the main guys in it so after their show ended on sunday the whole cast got in a plane and flew out to la and then I was in L.A., and then my wife and a couple of friends, we got on the plane to fly back, and so we crossed in the air for me to do Letterman there. I mean, it's just so bizarre. Just so bizarre. And my, both my sisters were watching my two daughters and then seeing us both on TV the same night. And they said they looked at each other and were like, we suck. Because they're like the two brothers were on late night talk shows, and what's funny is that one of the sisters um, probably has more street cred with like five to ten year olds than than either brothers. 
because she's a storyboard artist for uh, Bubble Guppies. So she her names her name comes up on on that show. <laughs> so more yeah, more like seven year olds are excited about my sister than <laughs> than either of the brothers. What is your favorite item in your childhood bedroom? And that could be anything from a poster mm-hmm. to a baseball card to whatever you might have had within it that you can look back now and think, I really liked having that. So I don't know how my parents did it, but um, when I was when I was 12, uh, I somehow got a benign tumor the size of a golf ball in my shoulder. And so... Um, my 13-year-old season, I didn't want to sit out a year, so I ended up playing the opposite hand just to um, – I just didn't want to sit out a year. And so I could put a glove on the arm, but I wasn't allowed to throw with it because um, I'm normally right-handed. And so then I threw for it for your lefty. And for that birthday, I don't know how they did it, but somehow they got word to my favorite player that, that something like that was happening or I was going in for surgery. And so I got a an autograph from Kent Herbeck, and um, I've met him. He does not remember that happening because he signed a lot of awesome. Um, but it was, uh, that was probably, I mean, I just couldn't believe that they got that. Um, and remember, access was just so poor back then. I mean, you could, I guess, send a letter to the stadium. Um, I used to send letters to the stadium to get autographs from players. But um, you know, there was no Twitter. Like, you couldn't, like, kind of luck out and and... I don't know, somehow social media wise, like get, you know, your question answered by Kevin Durant, um, which you can now, but you, you know, back then I was mesmerized how they pulled that off. For all I know, someone stamped it, you know, three doors down and I'm to this day fooled thinking it's actually his, by the way, funny, quite funny. Um, so when I got to meet my boyhood hero, Kent Herbeck, uh, I was the entertainment of this Harmon Killebrew event and he was there. And I remember being so afraid he was going to like, when you were about to meet your heroes, you're always wondering like, Oh, please don't tell like a racist joke or please don't be worse than I think, you know? Um, and so at one point I was like, wait, do I want to meet him? Um, and then when I met him, he said, no, sure. I know. Um, he said, I went to bed one night and I woke up in the morning and a buddy of mine from high school texted me and said, Hey, did you see Letterman last night? A guy mentioned you. And so then he came over and then he, he said, we watched the thing on YouTube. And then I had mentioned that I just wanted to be invited to Ken Herbeck's birthday or have the bat in the hall of fame. And then they thought it was funny. And then he said, and then we watched a bunch of your videos that whole day. Can you believe that? Like with hearing that, that your boyhood idol. Now, most people picked a different person than Ken Herbeck, but I don't know for whatever reason, that's what I picked. Um, so that was the bananas hearing that, that he, that he knew of me, eh? but then he kind of chronicled, here's what we did that next day. Like watched a bunch of videos and isn't that nuts? It's an amazing story. And it's actually funny that you throw a curveball into this story halfway through, because when you start this story about what happened to you playing little league, people might think you're going to say your favorite player was then Jim Abbott since you were playing with yeah. one glove, but there's a little curveball to it too. It keeps you on the edge of your seat for that story. You know what's weird too is I didn't, I didn't. So we had a kid in our little league whose brother was older and, you know, made it to Williamsport when our little league made it in the early eighties. And then that guy was, 
went and played at University of Michigan, and Jim Abbott was there at the time. And I remember this, I know that's like three people's second cousins twice removed. But anyway, the dad of the guy that played with Jim Abbott at the tryout said, hey, you're reminding me of this guy, Jim Abbott. He was explaining it to me, and I just, I didn't see it as any, um, any big thing. I just didn't want to sit out a year, and I couldn't. I would have, I would have thrown him with my foot. I just didn't like, I don't know. I didn't now as a parent, I, I think like you're thrilled when your kids like try to overcome something or, or have the gumption to like, Nope, I'm going to figure out how to open up this peanut butter jar. I don't need your help. I'm going to figure out how to do it myself. And it's like, that's awesome. Unless you're waiting to get in the car for something, but it's, it's great when they just figure out how to tackle something themselves. And so, yeah, when they likened it to, Jim Abbott back then, I just thought, no, I don't have one arm. I just don't want. I I'm not allowed to use my right arm. Right. I'm just going to use my left. Like we we play stickball in the front yard. I've been in a sling for the last six months. Like, what am I going to do? Watch? What am I going to keep score? Right. In the neighborhood? No, I'll just sling it like John Tudor. Put a little dirt on it and get out there. Back then, that was still acceptable. Low from an angle, (laughs) Denny Nagel. I would love to talk to you for another three hours, but I know you've got to get back to <laughs> looking at encyclopedias and getting the next stance right in the mirror. So the the last question tonight, yeah, t- tonight's all Oscar Gamble. Yeah, ex- exactly. You have to make sure that the guys in the book stay relevant and and up to date in case people stop you on the street. So I'll leave <laughs> as part of this segment, I guess, with a more family oriented one. If you're doing game night tonight instead of the encyclopedia and, and batting stances, what's a game that you know that you will win? Ooh, the only game my wife crushes all of us in all games that require any kind of brain. Um, so, and I go for the joke too much and apples to apples. So, the only game that I can routinely win is um, arcade Papa Shot. I like it. That's the only one. Well, I guess maybe if there was an interactive pitching, uh, you know, the miles per hour where where they check your stamina to see how fast you can oh, throw. Yeah. They have to make a reverse type one so that your talents can be put to use. If ESPN <laughs> Zone was still around, there's no reason why they can't have you put on like that green full suit that you would use for a, a video game with the little ball, ping oh, yeah. pong balls around it and yeah. have you go do your thing with, with the hologram of the player next to it. I don't know why they never came up with that. We missed out on the opportunity. Oh, the whole thing would have worked better if I was 19 and single and could just <laughs> roam city to city as a carny. Well, I don't know how many like girls you would pick up at the bar just telling them hey oh. have you ever seen ricky henderson's batting stance yeah uh, what could, could yeah, you back to back to yeah back to ken herbeck i realized like my junior year that like no one else was wearing twins jerseys to these <laughs> college parties like i, I should probably that's why i should think about that I'm, I'm shocked syracuse new york isn't a big minnesota twins town especially <laughs> yeah. with his jersey yeah i yeah I, it wasn't until college where i realized like oh everyone likes the team from where they grew up or they're local. Like people weren't, I love the golden state warriors, the Miami dolphins and the Minnesota twins. My dad was like, whatever son. Yeah. And and you went across (laughs) the country to Syracuse. You did everything by the book. They're just like, I'm dialing at random. 
Well, Gar, thanks so much for your time. I loved getting to hear a little bit more behind the curtain things aside from reading your book. It's incredible the amount of stories that you have. And maybe one day down the road, we'll get to do it again, especially if maybe your daughters start picking this up too and going viral themselves. We have to tell their tales as well if they become internet famous. But continued success (laughs) with what you're doing. I I love when I get to see on MLB Network or ESPN or wherever you may be roaming around and getting to make us smile a little bit. And as we said, making baseball fun again. So keep up the great work. Keep having fun. And again, maybe we can actually talk baseball sometime down the road. Appreciate it, John. Thanks again to Gar for jumping on the show and giving me so much of his time to do so. We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for the prestigious college newspaper, The Aquinas, which no longer is actually in physical print, and hosts of the John and Joe Sports Show on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. And since Joe does see more movies in the year than the 52 weeks within it, he now holds the reins to this segment. And don't worry. There aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films just with a better breakdown of what will be in store if you do so. And with Joe's analogy of the film compared to the sports world at the end. This week, Joe will take a look at Wind River, which Rotten Tomatoes describes as a chilling thriller that follows a rookie FBI agent who teams up with a local game tracker with deep community ties and a haunted past. They both set off to investigate the murder of a local girl on a remote Native American reservation in the hopes of solving her mysterious death. You can find Joe on Twitter. He's at Duke Mish. That's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupofdashjoe.com. Again, that's cupofdash or hyphen or whatever you'd like to call it, joe.com. At cupofdashjoe.com. For this week, you'll also find his piece on the art of subtle acting. So without further ado, here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. Taylor Sheridan put his writing talent on display with 2015's Sicario and 2016's Hell or High Water. Audiences and critics praised both films as Sicario earned three Oscar nominations and Hell or High Water earned four, including Best Original Screenplay and Best Picture. I thoroughly enjoyed both of those films, so when I saw Sheridan wrote and directed Wind River, I was on board without seeing a trailer. But could Sheridan handle the shift into the director's chair? Let's go to the tape. I don't want to give away much about Wind River because I went into the theater without knowing anything about the plot. We rarely have that luxury anymore, now that even trailers have their own teaser trailers. The first thing that jumped out at me in Wind River is the performance of Jeremy Renner. It's absolutely phenomenal, the best of his career. He's subtle yet carrying an everlasting pain on his face. And when emotion does ease through, it feels so real. In Wind River, he portrays a hunter in the wilderness of Wyoming. He clearly has the weapons training from past films such as The Hurt Locker, so he obviously nails that part of the role, too. The difficulty for notable actors is to distance themselves from a character he or she has portrayed in the past, 
With Renner as one of the Avengers, it could be tough to focus on him as a different character if the performance doesn't shift far enough away from how the casual moviegoer has come to know him. Well, he showed us his best. It's even a better performance than his Oscar-nominated role in The Hurt Locker. I've really enjoyed his career and felt bad for him that he always seems to be a side character in big films, and when he had an opportunity to hit it big in the lead in, say, the Bourne franchise, it fell flat, not because of his performance, but because the movie was not on par. So I'm happy to see him in the lead again, even if it is an independent film, because it could end up in an Oscar nomination. Renner is that good. Sharon has a style with his screenplays that I truly appreciate, and it's because he respects the audience. He doesn't tell you everything about the characters up front. He tells you what you need to know in the moment. Then you learn more and more about the characters as the movie progresses. When you respect the audience's intelligence, it keeps moviegoers engaged throughout the film. Also, the dialogue itself is intelligent and real. At the same time, there aren't any over-the-top monologues that take you out of the film. It's the perfect blend, and it makes the relationships in the movie realistic. I'd have to say Sheridan nailed the directing, too. He has one other directorial credit, which is 2011's Vile, but he looked like a seasoned veteran. I don't know if this story was close to his heart, but it's based on true events and gives the audience an important message. I wouldn't doubt it if this movie hit home with him, because he clearly understands the material and knows the story he wants to tell. Wind River also has beautiful cinematography. A lot of the shots where characters ride miles on snowmobiles are just breathtaking. While I wouldn't call this movie an action movie, it does have some pretty impressive and thrilling action sequences, aided by some great camera work and unique shots. My one nitpick is Elizabeth Olsen's performance. I do enjoy the Avengers going off and working on independent films together in between their blockbuster movies, but I think Olsen is a step behind Renner in Wind River. Not that they don't have chemistry, but her performance in the beginning is kind of stale. Renner carries her through some scenes before she picks it up toward the end. I wasn't immersed in her character right away. There's a difference between subtle and flat acting. Olsen was flat for half the movie, sounding like she was just reading lines. Again, she picks it up well by the end, it just takes a little bit to get there. Like I said, Renner's performance was the best of his career, but if Olsen matched it, similar to how Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence went toe-to-toe -to -toe in Silver Lining's playbook, I think Wind River is a shoe-in for a Best Picture nomination. The bottom line, Wind River blew me away with phenomenal directing, writing, and cinematography, and a career-defining performance from Jeremy Renner. Taylor Sheridan now sits on my list of directors and writers that I will go see their movies without knowing the plot or seeing the trailer. I'm just there without question. Elizabeth Olsen lagged a little behind Renner, but that is just a nitpick. I in no way dislike her performance. She doesn't detract from the film, but if she was a little better, it would have elevated the movie. However, when movies leave me nitpicking, that means they're already great, and when the season arrives, I expect Wind River will receive some well-deserved Oscar attention. I'll rank Wind River as a touchdown. I'll even tack on the extra point. And as far as Taylor Sheridan movies I've seen, the writer-director is batting a thousand. Sexy. Check! Uh, check, please.
That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Friday night. And please also be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and on the TuneIn app by searching for Sports Radio America on Wednesday nights. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dive back into some Major League Baseball, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.